0: Thanks for listening to the Imago Day podcast. If you live in the Portland area, we'd love to invite you into the life of our community. You can find out what's going on at idcpdx.com slash events or on social media at Imago Day PDX. Hi, all you beautiful people. Good morning. Oh, you sound Pentecostal already. Do it again. Good morning. Oh, this is home. This is home, look at all you beautiful, beautiful people. I haven't seen this many white people in the same place in a while. (laughs) You look good, you look good. Oh my gosh, okay, I'm gonna get to it, I'm gonna get to it, it is good to be home. I thank Pastor Rick for the invitation. I miss him, I text him a million times to say that I was gonna miss him today. Is my microphone situated okay? Is that a thumbs up? Okay, great. Um, because you know this hair is—we're not going to do all that in front of you guys. Um, so, um, but I text Pastor Rick to let him know I was going to miss him today. Same with Pastor Michelle, um, and and so I was prepared to not see them. I was not so much prepared yet to to see the members of the choir here in person. Um, I, was, I was like, okay, I'm gonna see people I love, but my heart really truly is overwhelmed and jumping at just the vision of your faces, just to be in the same space where we did so much life together. We did so much life together here, and it's too early to start getting all emotional about that, but I just want you to know I miss you. I miss you so much, and I'm so glad to be here. My years uh, at Imago shaped me in some of the best ways and I am, I am so thankful um, for this church in my life and in my journey. Um, last time I was here, I was just Michelle Lang, uh, but I do return to you as Michelle Lang Raymond. <laughs> Woo! You did it! Sebastian, you did it! <laughs> Many of you uh, essentially walked me down the aisle to my husband Jay And I'm happy to let you know that we survived our first two years of almost 24-hour access during the pandemic. (laughs) In pandemic years, we've been married five years. And so I just wanna, for those who have not met him, I just, baby, would you stand? I told you I was gonna objectify you. (laughs) I love him to, I love him dearly. We got married, we went on our honeymoon, and we came back and the world shut down, uh, leaving us in nobody's company but each other's for 24 hours a day. And um, I just need you to know, I was single. Is that Maurice? Hey! Afro, <laughs> Afro, Afro! Uh, you know, I was single for 30, 30 years, and so as much as I love my husband, the idea of immediate emergence into constant company, you know, was no joke on your girl. So, uh, but y'all helped me pick a good guy. You helped me pick a good guy and he got me here today and we are doing just fine. He treats me well. And so uh, I just want you to know that we're doing good even though we haven't seen you uh, since, since that beautiful day. Uh, the last time I preached here um, on, this, on this platform, um, I, think I, I think I preached for like an hour and 15 minutes And uh, I haven't been invited back for six years. (laughs) So I think there's some correlation there. So Kristen, I'm just going to jump into it today so that, you know, maybe Pastor Rick invites me back a little sooner. Amen? Amen. Amen. I get the honor today of um, inserting a thought for you to consider uh, in between two sermon series. So this is, you know, a standalone. And I thought... Um, When I thought about coming today and and sharing, uh, I thought I would like for us to consider today uh, this idea, that maybe it is time to give up. Maybe it is time to just give up. Make room for the idea that God is calling us, maybe leading us, to just give up. I know that seems kind of counterintuitive. Um, I mean, we don't hear that all the time. We don't hear people saying, hey, Matt. We don't hear people saying, Uh, you should just give up. We don't hear that, especially not in these spaces. In these spaces, we hear people say all the time, don't give up. Don't give up on your career. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your relationships. Don't give up on your dreams. Don't give up on your goals. Don't give up on your priorities, your politics, your policies. Don't give up on your methods. Don't give up. Hang on. Hang in there. Fight for it no matter what it takes. Hold on, especially to what makes you right. Hold on to that. It's a common and popular, sometimes necessary perspective that we do need to hear uh, on a regular basis, especially for people like me who are often thinking about, uh, what does it mean to like, hold on to something, and am I going to get out of it what I, wanna, what I need to put into it? So for people like me who are so easy to say, you know what? This is not worth it. I need people to come to me and say, don't give up. Don't give in. Don't let go. But today I want to challenge us to consider uh, as a qualification for being a disciple of Christ that there is some virtue and some bravery and even some wisdom in knowing when it's time to just give up, to change your mind to let your mind be changed, to let your heart be changed, to let your actions and your, your attitudes and, 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 and your activities change. For the cause of Christ in our lives, what it looks like, what it might look like when there's a time to just give up. And I would say that Christ would say to us today, for the sake of what actually matters, giving up, fighting about, and holding on to. What doesn't? Amen? All right, I told y'all I'm Pentecostal and if you didn't get the memo, I'm black, so I want all of that. There you go, let's pray. Lord God, thank you again for this time that you've called us to. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, change us today, amen. Amen, as Rachel said, when I first moved to Portland, it was to take a job at Warner Pacific University. And, and at the time that I came to Warner, this was in 2013, at the time I came to Warner, there was a lot of talk about change, change to make education more accessible for people, change to make, make there be more opportunity, change for the sake of diversity. There was a whole lot of positive talk about what it looks like to change a campus, change a campus community. And, and there's a lot of, again, positive and affirming talk about change. And here's the thing that I've learned, Carl, about change is we all like the idea of change, especially for the good and for the better. We all like the idea of change until it's our turn to give up something for it. Amen, somebody? We all like the idea of changing for the better. We all like that as a concept. Amen? until it's our turn to give up something for it. Trust me, I know, I literally have two, maybe three memberships at a gym's. (laughs) I do, this is a God honest truth I'm I'm not proud to say. I have gym memberships waiting on me to embrace the idea of giving up something for change. I like the idea of a thinner me. I like the idea until You ask me to change something and to give up something for it. We all like the idea of change, especially for the better, until it's our turn to give up something for it. My first year, my first semester at Warner Pacific, I had a student come in my office, um, a young white guy, and he said, um, he said, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing, I love, this, I love this movement that we're moving into, this direction that we're moving into, I love what you're doing, I love the different energy you're bringing, I love all that you're doing, um, and I can't wait you know, to just see how we all change and grow and evolve uh, with, these, with, with these new um, additional ways of, of, of doing life together. He told me about uh, his black friends, which, stopped doing that, he told me <laughs> about his black friends who prayed like I pray. Right? And how he's like, I can't wait to have prayer like that in chapel, and I can't wait to have songs and music like that in chapel, and I can't wait to hear messages like that in chapel. I'm excited about the change that you're bringing or that you're going to help us engage. And I was like, great, great. I have I have somebody who's excited about it. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Second semester, the same year, my very first year, same student comes into my office. He sits down and he says, Michelle, I want to talk to you. It's like, all right, let's talk, brother. Let's, let's talk. He comes in and he looks at me square in my eyes and he says, you're bringing in too many black male speakers. Right. He said, you're bringing in too many black, I like all the stuff that you're doing. I like all the stuff that you're doing. I like all the, I like all the ways you're challenging us and changing us and moving us and growing us, but I think you're bringing in too many black male speakers. Now, I gotta be honest. I had to really respect just his nerve. (laughs) Amen? I really just had to respect his nerve. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna make time for this conversation just because you walked in here and pulled your pants up to do that. I'm I'm gonna respect, I'm gonna respect that you walked in my office prepared to say that sentence. So we sat down, I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah, I, I think you're bringing in too many black male speakers. And so, and so we ran the numbers, like we literally sat down and we did the little stick, stick numbers or whatever you call them. We ran the numbers and it turns out that while I was bringing in more black male speakers, the slim majority of, of, my, of the count of speakers, it was still predominantly white men. And so I showed him that number, and we fussed. We went back and forth about the numbers. Um, and he said, he says, well, I just think the numbers need to reflect the population of the school. Because at the time, Warner was still, uh, still pre- very predominantly white. And he said, I just think the numbers need to reflect that. I was like, OK, well, there are, more, there are more women that go to school here than guys. So what do you think about the number of women I'm bringing in? Because I ain't doing so good. Right? It was crickets there. It was crickets to that point. He's like, well, that's not what I'm talking about right now. In my mind, I was like, I know it ain't. That's why I said it. That's why I said it. We went back and forth. Uh, about the numbers and as nicely as I could I tried to get him to understand that since the numbers of chapels don't change in a school year the only thing that could change was the people that I was bringing in which automatically means that the number of those demographics had to change amen Ah! if you ask me how that conversation ended I will say everybody likes the idea of change until it's your turn to give up something for it everybody likes the idea of change until it's your turn to give up something for it let's look at a couple of scriptures this morning we're going to go to Matthew chapter 19 just a few yeah. script just a few verses 16 through 22 it reads like this it says just then a man came to Jesus and asked Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. And Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and your mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, the Bible says he went away sad because he had great wealth. We should know that just prior to this, Jesus had been interacting with lots of crowds. So this is a moment where Jesus goes from, from, from the big crowd stuff down to just a one-on-one conversation with one person, with one man. And the man asks Jesus a simple question. And Jesus, I think, gives him a simple answer. I think almost something like a form letter answer. But the man responds, the young man responds, with, kind, I think, kind of a measure of, uh, of pride and hubris, maybe even arrogance almost like he's got this whole eternal life thing figured out and he decides to ask what we would call now a clarifying question. Have you ever had conversation with people who will like clarify, question you to death because they just don't like the answer you're given? Right, well let me ask another question. No, you're not gonna ask me all these questions, you just don't like what I'm telling you. I think that's what's happening here. He asks a clarifying question and he says, I did all that stuff. What else do I have to do? I think this was an example of where you should stop when you were ahead, but he doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't. And Jesus, I think knowing this man's heart, he pushes him, or he pushes in and he tells him, all right, go sell your possessions, go give to the poor, and then you come follow me. The Bible says the young man went away sad because Jesus had asked too much. It was too much. Now I think there's a couple things, there's a couple truths here that are evident that I wanna make sure that, that, that I put a pin in before, before I continue. The, the two truths that I think are evident are this. One, the first things listed weren't hard for him to say no to because he was likely never gonna do those things anyway. Kill somebody, steal, lie under oath. For the most part, on most days, most of us can agree for a better deal not to do those things. Right, if somebody said to you, I will pay your rent or your mortgage forever, as long as you don't kill anybody, most of us would take that deal, amen? Now, if you are here and you would not take that deal, I need you to go sit over there so we know who you are. But most of us would take that deal. So I think even when Jesus put that out there at first, I don't think those things were even hard for the young man to agree to. So there's not even a sacrifice yet. There's not even a push or a press yet. But it wasn't until Jesus asked him to change his relationship with his possessions, with the things that he owned, with the things that established him as him, with the things that made him better and higher and more right. It wasn't until Jesus said, shift your relationship with that that the Bible says the young man said, I can't do it. Said the air, the, his area of struggle was related to his possessions, to his worth, and not just the money, but the power and the identity that the money afforded him. He struggled, the Bible says he was saddened at the request to give that up. We should know that. The second thing I think we need to pay attention to here is Jesus didn't really want or need that man's stuff. We know that because Jesus told him to give it away. So it wasn't even like Jesus was like, bring me your stuff. I want your stuff. It wasn't even like that. Jesus said, give it away. I don't even want it. Much less you have it. I don't even want it. So give it away. I think what Jesus wanted in this moment was to see, or better yet, let this young man see if he was willing to give up something to actually get what he said that he so passionately wanted. And again, I would say, everybody likes the idea of change until it's your turn to change, until it's your turn to give up something for it. Now some, some here would say, now Michelle, I hear you, I hear that, I hear that idea, I hear that, I hear that notion, I, I can get with that. But, Michelle, <laughs> why should I give up something that I'm really good at, Mike. Why should I give up something that I've worked hard for? Why should I give up something where most times, probably 10, nine out of ten times, I'm probably right about? Amen? Why? I mean, it sounds all virtuous and brave and wise when you just have a little cute quote. Michelle, that sounds good, but when you actually ask me to give up something that I have earned and that I believe I am right about and I have the right to hold on to, uh, that's a whole nother thing, which I completely understand. I completely understand because on a regular basis, by the time I say something, Bob Palindrone, by the time I say something, you'll catch that later, I think I'm right. By the time something comes out of my mouth, Cheryl, I think I am right. Now, you can call it stubborn, you can call it determined, or you can call it focused and functioning at a very high level of efficiency and expertise, which is what I call it. (laughs) You can call it whatever you want. I just call it being right. And when I'm right, the scripture, even when I'm right, the scripture still says, that there is a way to be right. There is a way to be right. We'll jump ahead in the, between the eighth and 12th chapters of first Corinthians, Paul exhorts us about how to manage and navigate uh, our knowledge and our skill and our opinion and our positions even when, we're, when we think we know what we know and we think we're right about stuff. He says there's a way to navigate all that you know and all the ways that you're right. And he says it's called a more excellent way. We're not gonna read the passage, but he says everybody knows something. Everybody is, 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 is right about something. Even when you know something and even when you are right, there is a way to navigate, navigate that and that way is the more excellent way. In 1 Corinthians 8 verses 1 through 3, Paul writes that everybody possesses knowledge. He says now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs us up while love builds. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. He says, be careful essentially not to become one of those people who stand flat footed and just talks about all that he or she knows. Because the truth is, We don't even know all that we don't know, amen? When I was single, I thought I knew everything there was to know about being married. I'm like, how hard is it? How hard can it be? Two people who love each other and love Jesus, how hard can marriage be, amen? Some of y'all, it is not just me, some of y'all thought the same way. Just pray about it. Pray about it, put some blessed oil on it, it'll all work out. I thought I knew all that there was to know. When I was in my 20s, I thought I knew everything about everything. Some parents can attest to that if you got teenagers, amen, who think they're 20-something. On a regular basis on how I engage the world, I thought I just knew everything that there was to know. I couldn't help it, I just thought I knew everything. I didn't know what I didn't even know. But Paul says, even when you know a lot, be careful how you walk because you don't know everything. But on the slim chance that you do, Paul says there's a right way to be right, and it's called the more excellent way. Fast forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is where he says the more excellent way. Even if you know lots of things, There's a more excellent way. And that way is the way of love. As a matter of fact, none of the other things that you know can do, can excel in, matter if they are not fueled by doing it the more excellent way, the way of love, because love has to be the fuel, because love is the more excellent way. But I need the church to know something. I need the believers to know this, to know this that love will cost you something. Love will cost you something. The most signature thing that love will cost you is change. Or at the very least, it will cost you your willingness to change, your willingness to give up something. First Corinthians thirteen is the famous love chapter in the bible it 's where we see all the wonderful things that love is. Amen, love is patient, love is kind, you know love just does all these amazing, beautiful, wonderful things it doesn 't keep a record of wrongs. Love never fails, love pursues love, love perseveres. just this incredible list of things that it says love is the more excellent way love is all of these things, and at the end of that list of all the things that Paul says love is. He says this in verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child, et cetera, et cetera. He says, but when I became a man, or when I grew up, he says, I put childish things behind me. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, I reasoned like a child, I existed like a child, I have an attitude like a child, my energy was like a child, but when I became a man, when I grew up, I put childish things away. I asked myself a lot of times when I read that chapter, why would you end the love chapter on this? Why? After telling me all the beautiful things that love is, after telling me all the things that the most excellent way gives me, why would you end this chapter on this sentiment? When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, when I grew up, I put the ways of childhood behind me. And I think it's because of this. I think Paul was saying in order to possess all the things that the love list has for us, you have to give up something. Amen? You don't get all of that without getting to this conclusion, that you have to give up something. Love is the more excellent way, but love, the way of love, the way of Jesus will cost you something will require something of you. You have to be willing to grow up, to give up something and maybe, maybe, stop acting like you know everything so that the Lord can do a new thing in you. Amen? Amen. Again, I understand when, when we say, but Michelle, I've earned this, I've earned, I've earned the right to think the way I think. I've earned the right to act the way I act. I've earned the right to be the way I am. I I promise you, I understand it. In um, 2018, I tragically lost my mom. I tragically lost my mother, and I miss her um, every day. I imagine if she was still here, um, I imagine she would be my husband's best friend, and I would just be like the third party. <laughs> and I imagine that she would be um, a designer, a costume designer at my theater in Seattle. She was geniusly creative um, and administrative, um, and she was she was just a phenomenal woman. But she also she also struggled. She she struggled with. Um, with being bipolar um, before society was so ready to talk about mental illness and, and, and all of that. She struggled with being bipolar, and on top, of, on top of that, she struggled with substance abuse. And she struggled with both so much um, and so early in her life that it affected me in my upbringing. It affected me and my brother as we were growing up. And I didn't realize it, I, didn't, I, I truly didn't realize it until later in life how much I held on right, to the effects of, of, of how much her, her, her struggles um, landed in my life. And as much as I was um, proud of her, for being a a young mom raising kids on her own and and being successful and going to college and going to the the military. And as much as I was proud of her, there were times that, um, a lot of times, that I was embarrassed by her struggles. Um, And that embarrassment created a a wedge between us. It, It created a wedge that just developed and grew between us because again we weren't talking about this stuff back then and so I didn't understand and I just thought I just thought her love for me should be bigger than all these struggles I that's my that's that that was my young mind thought she should love me more than depression she should love me more than her substance abuse she should know how to right and so not understanding things as I do now um, it just created a wedge between us that 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 set for a long time. Um, a few years before she passed, she had um, a mental break. Essentially, she she had a mental break that that um, that led her to basically get on a city bus one day and just ride it for 24 hours. Just literally got on got on a bus and just rode the bus for 24 hours until somebody took her um, to the hospital. To the, to the psychiatric hospital. And she's there and she tells me she's there and there's nothing for me to do. She's, she's, she's there, you know, getting treatment. So one day I get a call from the doctor who's treating her and he, he, the doctor asked me to come, come in for a conversation with him and my mom. And I go and I walk into this really sort of sterile, monochrome kind of, kind of room Um, And I sit down in this in this really small space to have this conversation with my mom um, and the doctor. And the doctor tells me about um, my mom's manic swings. And he explains, right, he explains what manic is and what it does. And as he's explaining it, I feel like for once somebody finally understands what it's like to live in my house somebody finally understands because I would try to explain the to family like what it was like and nobody nobody understood everybody thought I was making it up because my mom was so genius in so many other ways they thought I was just making it up so for once I felt heard and I felt seen and I felt like somebody understood what it was that I was encountering and dealing with and living with and they would understand how I felt and so I'm listening to the doctor unpack um, what manic is and what bipolar is and and he tells me he can help her he says we can help her. It's not it's not too far gone. We can help her. And I'm am thrilled. I'm I'm thrilled at the thought that that there's help. Uh because by this time, the wedge between us was so big. It was, it was, it was you know, it was, a wedge that, it was a wedge that basically created a silence. It wasn't even a wedge that created noise. It was a wedge that just sort of created silence. So I was thrilled at the idea that somebody was going to help her. And I was more thrilled that it wasn't going to be me. <laughs> I was just happy somebody else said, we can help her. I was like, amen, praise you, Jesus. He said, we can treat her. He said, but she needs... She needs some stuff from you that we can't do. And I was like, okay. And he says, stuff like picking her up for lunch and just taking her to lunch. Stuff like going over to her house and watching a movie together. Stuff like just calling her a couple times a week and just talking about nothing. He says, we can help her with the with the clinical stuff, with the, with the imbalance, we can help her with that. But as she's told us her story, the thing that's missing from her story is you. She feels like she can't get you. Mind you, I'm a, I'm a Christian at this point in my life. I'm a young believer. Not only that, I'm a young believer and I'm, I'm in ministry. So literally four or five days a week, I'm somewhere singing or preaching or praying, or delivering food to people, or picking up people's kids, or serving in the youth group, which you should do here. But he says, we can help her on the clinical side, but she needs things from you that she can only get from you. And I was completely disagreeable to those requests. I didn't say it out loud. I didn't say it out loud, but I just thought, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'm not doing this for her now because that would mean giving up my right to be resentful for all the times that I felt alone and abandoned and neglected and hurt and embarrassed in front of my friends. Helping her now would mean giving up the anger that I felt like I had a right to. Helping her now meant that I don't get to tell her about all all the ways that I've been affected. I don't get to tell her that right now because we just have to help her. I don't get to tell her that, so that means I just gotta walk around with these feelings that I think I have a right to. And I sat there and I didn't say it out loud, but I meant it from the depth of my being on the inside and I defiantly said, I will not help her. I will not give up my right to be right here. And I know in that moment the Holy Spirit spoke to me as calmly as he needed to. And he said, Michelle, not helping her will not help you. Not helping her will not help you. The Holy Spirit says your feelings are right. Your memories are right. But they will not serve you here. There is a more excellent way here. There is a more excellent way here, and that way is love, and it is going to cost you something. It is going to require you to give up something. I wish, Imago, I wish I could tell you I changed immediately in that moment. I wish I could tell you that, but I would be lying to you. I can tell you eventually, eventually I agreed with God. <laughs> Amen. I can tell you eventually I agreed with God. I can tell you eventually that my right to be right was not serving me. My right to hold on was not healing me. My right to the pain, my right to the anger, my right to all of it, it was not doing me well in any kind of way. And God had provided a moment, God had provided a a way for me to start dealing with some of this stuff. But it meant, what? That I have to give up something for it. I want to just end with this because I don't push you guys to 35 minutes and I know you're struggling. (laughs) I've been going to church a long time. I've been going to church a long time. Actually I've been going to church a long time and I've been following Jesus a long time. Actually now most of my life now I've been a follower of Jesus. As a youth worker, I told a lot of kids, I'm glad the young people are in here today. As a youth worker, I told a lot of kids about the undying, unyielding love of Jesus. What I didn't say to kids, because I didn't want them to think Jesus was a meanie, I didn't tell kids that that love will cost you something, that that love requires a response, that that love requires you to do as Paul did to put away childish things in response to that love, not just for the sake of Christ, but for your own sake. It will cost you. That love will cost you. That love will require you to give up something. As we, um, as we get ready to approach the table today, I'll invite the worship team back up. As we get ready to approach the table, I just want to invite you to consider what that is for you. What is it, like the young man who went to Jesus and said, what must I do? And He didn't like the answer, so he kept asking questions. He kept asking clarifying questions until he could get to something that he was agreeable in giving up. My question is for us today to risk, to dare to be brave enough to ask the Lord, what is it that you would have me give up? What is it that you would have me to consider? Whether you're a new believer or you've been studying this more excellent way a long time, I invite all of us to ask the Lord today, what at this point would you have me let go? And then listen and then be brave. Be courageous, be wise, amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time and this space. Thank you for how your spirit moves, touches, convicts, inspires, challenges us. God, may we approach you bravely. May we approach you courageously and may we listen As people who have grown up, may we listen. As people who want to grow up, may we listen. As people who want to live out our faith in a more excellent way, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.